15 love. Hey, I've got I've got a point. You know what I would like to see is I would like to see Muhammad umpire an Ostapenko match. That, <laughs> oh that. that would be the one. That'll be it. She could she she could deal with him. And welcome to a brand new edition of Match Points here on TennisMajors.com, where we get together to debate, as you know, the biggest topics in all of tennis. This is our pre-Roland Garros edition for French Open 2023, and we have a streamlined panel today. As you can see, Marian Bartoli, Simon Campers, and just I, so these two should get after it good and early. And, and, and let's get started, gang, and we will start on the road to Roland Garros, apart from the withdrawal of Rafa Nadal. What is your main takeaway from the clay season on both the ATP and the WTA tours? And how open do you believe this year's French Open truly is? Let's begin first on the ATP side, and I will defer to you, Simon Campers. Well, it's funny. I was thinking about this the other day. It's 20 years since Martin Verkerk got to the final at Roland Garros, which I'm sure we all remember. And it, it, it feels a little bit like something like that could happen again. You know, the... Obviously, it's a it's a shocker that Nadal's not there. Not in terms of it being a shock, because we know we knew he was struggling. But it's just such a big shame. But you've got doubts about Novak's fitness um, and his form. You know, I'm sure he'll play himself nicely into form at Roland Garros, but he's not exactly where he wanted to be. He would have at least have liked maybe to have won a tournament. Um, you've got Casper Ruud, who sort of fell off the face of the earth until last week in Rome. Um, you've got Carlos Alcaraz, the world number one. He's the outstanding player. I'd put him a little bit above uh, Novak. And you've got people like Holger Rune. You've got the new clay court star, Daniel Medvedev. Who would have thought it? Um, but you've got a lot of people in the mix. Stefanos Tsitsipas is there or thereabouts. But no one is making an absolutely outstanding play to be the favourite on the men's side. And it feels to me like, depending on the draw, a lot will depend on you know which side of the draw um, Novak goes as number three. Um, but it feels like there could be a, a space for someone to, to run through. I would make Alcaraz the favourite, but there's a lot of pressure on him and he's played a lot. So, you know, you, you'd expect Novak to come through and do well again. But there is a big opportunity for someone to do a Verkerk and, and make a big run. Marin Bartoli, same thing on the ATP side. Your thoughts? Yeah, I'm actually on the same side as Simon. The only thing that I feel is sort of more certain is you feel someone like Novak, someone like Alcara, someone like even Andre Rublev, um, Olga Rune, you feel that those guys will be very difficult to take out of the first week. So you feel they will go through that first week and then depending how the draw unfolds, they will sort of all start to match up from the round of 16 onwards. Um, but I do feel someone like Andre Rublev, for example, who won Monte Carlo, you know, could be relatively before when Rafa was dominating or Novak was just right there, not someone we couldn't think about even to be in the final, for example. You feel that was really a step way too forward. Um, nowadays, um, you absolutely feel it's a lot more real. And I will put in that same bracket, Olger Rune. I will... Um, put in the same bracket, Danny Medvedev, which obviously they have a high ranking, but you just don't think, especially for Daniil, they had the possibility and the game to go in the final in Roland Garros. Now that he played that way in Rome, which was extremely wet and therefore extremely slow, 
and still managed to win the title. That gave him a lot of confidence, and I was lucky enough actually to interview him for my own radio show after his final. And he said to me two things that I felt very interesting. One, he has changed his strings to something different from the previous years. Second, he has changed the sole he is using on his shoes, and he feels he has more grip and he moves better. And that was definitely really evidence in in Rome, the way he was moving and tracking balls here and there that he was not able to do that in the previous years. And then third, he felt already in the practice before Rome that he was playing incredible. He just didn't feel for now that on clay that was good enough to to give him the reinsurance because practice is completely different on the match. Now he's coming with such a huge boost of confidence. He has won five tournaments this year. I mean, you can really feel the other years were like, okay, how many matches is going to win? You know, sort of almost as a small, small joke, you know. Now you feel, okay, hold on one second. He's going to be scene number two. If the drone falls quite well for him, it can be all the way to the final. So I, my take on it is wide open, which was something that we used to use for the women's, definitely not for the men. Um, but in that wide opening, you will still put six or seven names that you feel are going to be there. So it's not like wide open, you think someone, you know, like Verker, for example, 100 in the world or 50 in the world is going to make it through. But six, seven names for the men's, it's a lot, which was not the case before. All right. <clears throat> Let's continue now. Uh, same idea, main takeaway from clay season. And then also how open this French Open is, but now over to the WTA, to the women's side. Simon, get us started there, please. Yeah, I think, well, exactly what Marion's saying. Now it's switched, doesn't it? So the women, you're looking at really the big three uh, as as the most likely to go on and win it. You've got to go Sviantec as the number one. Um, who you might have thought two or three months ago would be rock-solid favourite to win here in uh, Roland Garros. But things have changed slightly. She's got a bit of a problem with Rybakina in terms of the matchup. Uh, Rybakina's playing incredibly well on a surface that few people thought she would do as well as she has done. And you've got Sabalenka, who can blow anyone off the court when she's in the right mood. And this year, she's been in the mood. She's changed a lot of things in her game, changed her mentality, become a champion. And, you know, you can't underestimate what the effect of that Australian Open will have done for her. Same for Rebecca winning Wimbledon last year. You know, these are now Grand Slam champions chasing Eager. And my, I, I still think Eager is a worthy favourite. My only concern is that there are times in matches when when things don't go absolutely perfectly for her, when she can really still get rattled. And, you know, she's a very good problem solver, but she she sometimes lets things get on top of her, get on top of her. And, you know, it, it can it become difficult. I, I just think mentally that matchup with Rebecca is difficult. There are other players in, in the mix who are going to play well. Um, but I think it's those three that you're looking at to get to the back end of the tournament. And to be honest, it's anyone's pick. Oh, Marion Bartoli, thoughts, please. No, completely on the same side. For me, the, the sort of switch for Iga was last year when she lost a semifinal of the Year's End Championship. Because when she got out of the round robin, beating actually Karin Garcia in the round robin quite easily, you thought, okay, that's her Year's End Championship. She will have won you know, so many grands, two Grand Slam that year. Winning the Arizona Championship, she's going to be really the overwhelming favorite for the, almost the whole thing in 2023. And I think that tumble that she took in the semifinal was a sort of a bit of a shock. And you can see that he has been coming back slightly um, towards this year because the way she lost in the Australian Open, then the small injury she's, she's getting, then the Indian Wells Miami, she was not able to defend. Stuttgart, she won, obviously. 
Madrid, she's losing to Red Hot Zabalenka that is winning, hitting winners here and there. But you can start to see the patterns of game that disturbing her. And that pattern is just hard hitters, you know. And and even though she was leading quite comfortably against um, Rybakina in Rome, you can sense the discomfort playing in those type of players. And therefore, what Simon said, which, which is completely true, if it doesn't fall perfectly to close it out quickly, then the doubts start to creep in. And, um, and you know, she obviously picked up that small injury again, but because she feel that, you know, she has to close it out right now because if you start to go to a three sets and those, those girls are able to pound and pound the ball, she's getting more and more uncomfortable with that, which I didn't sense last year. I sensed last year she was very much, you know, until she lost to Alize Corne in Wimbledon because she was really coming at the end of so many matches. But other than that, you felt like she was always in control, whoever she had on the other side on the net. And I think that's a slightly disappear. I'm not saying totally disappear, but slightly disappear. And that opened the door to big hitters. And and that's where I'm saying that I think if Karen Garcia can get her mojo back together, can sort of you know, mentally calm down a little bit and not feeling so stress and pressure because she has to f- sort of prove something this year, I think she can have that type of game, you know. And then with the crowd in Raga or the atmosphere, you start to get one, two, three matches that can really unfold well with her. But other than that, the big three, absolutely. All right, let's continue on. Madrid and Rome were extended to become two-week events this year, something that was criticized by many people, including players like Onis Jabor. Some said the tournament took too long to get going. Others said the second week lacked consistency in terms of the schedule. The women's final, in fact, in Rome didn't even start until 11 p.m. So the question for you is, what exactly would you change about this tournament and its scheduling? And I'll begin with you, Amarian. Well, it's interesting because um, I'm obviously helping on the side a little bit here and now Stapenko and and I was in touch with her a lot for that Rome tournament because she had to play all the way to the semifinal. She had a rain delay during her semifinal. Um, she sent me WhatsApp as soon as she was off the court. She started to send me WhatsApp about what should I do? Do you think we're going to start again? Do you think it's going to be cancelled? I mean, even the players had so many doubts. I think the 11 p.m. scheduling is just completely wrong, and and the the crowd I think was right to boo um, the um, the trophy ceremony, even though they were not booing the players, obviously. But just you know, for the sake even of the people, you just can't schedule a final 11 p.m. Put it the next day before the men's final, a decent hour. The broadcaster will be happy even because no one scheduled, you know, a final to be broadcast at 11 p.m. either. So, so the audience and and the number of people watching was pretty low, I'm sure. So scheduling a decent time when you know you're going to have audience on the TV and audience inside the stadium. Um, I'm I don't mind the two weeks. Obviously, as a player, you prefer to have a day off, especially before a Grand Slam, when you know you can just lose a lot of energy into those sort of packed one week tournaments, especially Rome used to be the previous year 64 draws on both sides for not a lot of courts so you have really not of, a lot of practice courts available even Novak complaining this year saying that he had to you know warm up just before his match against Cameron Nori and the court available for warm up was only two courts so I mean Rome was always a struggle even when I was playing but I think if you spread that up over two weeks you can at least get that day off when you can practice a little bit more. You don't feel you have to shrink six matches in seven days. We can be quite intense. So I don't mind the two weeks period. I do mind the 11 p.m. And I do mind the two trophy ceremony, one in Madrid when they didn't let the girls speak 
in the doubles final. And then that one back-to-back for the WTA, I feel it's absolutely horrendous and disrespectful. Simon Cambers, thoughts, please. Yeah, two, two weeks for me is too long. Um, it, it was very confusing, even as somebody who knows what's going on and knew the schedule, etc. But, you know, you put the TV on in that first weekend and most people will expect to be seeing semis and finals. And suddenly you're seeing second, third round. You're like, what the hell's going on here? It, it's confusing for fans who just don't. I, I think they're not exactly there's not enough communication in how these things work. So fans don't know what to expect. Second week, I think from Tuesday, there were so few matches, singles matches on court. Four, maybe a day. Was it two a day, two singles each side? And, uh, you know, you go from sort of the richness of having 50 matches to two. And you're you're thinking, this just doesn't make sense. There was no flow to me for Rome, especially, which is such a great tournament to watch as a fan. Not necessarily the best tournament to cover as a journalist, because there are some issues there. But... It's it's really a, it's, a, it's a, yeah oh yeah there is like few, like what please well, please it's, like it's, what it's a very you know the, the where the media are put in at Rome is actually almost outside the gate it's in an old youth center uh, or a hostel and you know the facilities are the the media is sometimes left on the on the rack a little bit in Rome but there there are other reasons to do with you know this this the expansion of the draws also means that there are more and more players in a small area, players area, which means that other people get excluded. So we have issues with access to areas where we need to talk to coaches, for example. And that gets squeezed even further because the media are just someone that you can just say, oh, no, leave them out. Don't let them in. That's fine. And the players take precedence. So there are lots of issues around that. The 11 o'clock final was a joke, an absolute joke. It should be written into the rules of the ATP and WTA that you should not have a final starting after like nine o'clock or something. 11 o'clock, who's watching it? No one. People switching off at home, not enough people staying in the stadium. The players, it's it's rubbish. Kalinina gets injured. You know, it's, 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 it's awful for the players. And I, I'm sure if you ask them, could you? Would you come back the next day? They would have said yes. And if not, the tournament needs to be more flexible. There, there's so little flexibility amongst tournament schedulers. You know, they're the ones. It's their tournament. Just do what's right for the players and the press and the plan and the fans, etc. And uh, everyone will be a lot happier. And as Marion said, the thing in Madrid with the with the uh, women's final not being allowed to speak afterwards, we still haven't really got to the bottom of it in terms of public knowledge. Um, it's it was outrageous. So there are a lot of issues with both those tournaments. I would, I would make it a ten day tournament if you could do that. Uh, you know, you get the first few rounds out of the way quickly, and then you give the players a gap between matches. Um, and but I definitely would cut it from two weeks and work on the scheduling so that people aren't playing past midnight. I'm just getting word now, this is breaking news, that the media center in Rome is now being renamed the Simon Campbell's <laughs> Media Center. <laughs> so they're, they're paying tribute to you. They're naming it after you now. I think it will, if we want the list of things that will never happen, that is number one. Okay, moving on now. A lot has been happening, a lot of drama, in fact, on the court and off the court recently, including Hugo Gaston, who now has had his fine reduced to 72,000 euro with good behavior, for Madrid when he deliberately threw a ball onto the court during a point of play. This deemed a case of unsportsmanlike conduct. It's more money, the original fine of 144,000 euro, than he's actually earned all this season. Question, do you feel that the fine was fair, was too much, or maybe not enough? 
considering it's his fourth such sanction this year. And again, we understand that there's a potential half reduction if he's on his best behavior. Uh, Marian Bartoli, your thoughts? I'm torn. Um, I'm torn because we are all humans and we all do mistakes. And I don't want to be the one saying, oh, you know, I'm the teacher and you have to behave that way. And that's all it is. And um, by far, not my um, not my thought to sort of blame him. Now, if I'm analyzing from outside as a pure journalist point of view, um, the force time looks a lot to me. Okay, so you can make an, a mistake once, you can make it twice, four times, that starts to make it a lot. Now, is it the fine, the right way to do it? I'm not sure, uh, because how to determine the fine? Is $10,000 enough? $100,000 enough? It's it's very debatable. And definitely for someone like Hugo Gaston, even if it's reduced, it's still a tremendous amount of money. 72,000 euros, it's a lot of money. It's not, you know, the earnings of Novak Djokovic or anyone close to that. So it is a lot of money, but I don't think it's the right way to tackle that issue, the money. I think the the right way to do it is maybe to say, well, look, we understand you have some frustration on the court. We're not saying like everyone, you know, it doesn't make mistake. But I think, first of all, being able to give him maybe, you know, some help with a psychological, someone to talk to. First of all, you know, try to approach a problem. I'm not saying there is no problem. Don't get me wrong. But I'm saying that it's just, I think, a more intelligent approach to just saying, this is what you have to pay. This is a fine sort of determine. I'm not sure if even it's even written in the rule book because obviously the ATP has all those rules and everything should be written in the rule book. It would be very interesting to know if it's actually written in the rule book. But I think if you have a more clever approach to try to understand why Hugo has been doing that. Because obviously four times, it's not one by mistake. It's a repetitive behavior. So I yeah, would try to help him. I would try to help him to tackle that issue rather than just saying, yeah, you just have to pay. Because what is going to sort of stop him to do it again, you know, in the heat of the moment, for example. So that's my only concern. Simon, the 144, the 144,000 euro initially really sends a statement. And that says, we're not having any more of this. Now they've cut it in half, apparently based on behavior. But your thoughts on that, because that initial sum really is saying, we have no more tolerance for this, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, the good, you, you need to understand the way that that unsportsmanlike conduct uh, charge happens. I mean, there are a lot of things, a lot of actions that can be grouped into unsportsmanlike conduct. So this was one of them. But um, as I was checking the other day, because I didn't know this either, with each repetition of the unsportsmanlike conduct, the fine goes up 100%. So you would have been like 18,000, 36, 72, 144. So if he did it again, it would be 288, etc. So, you know, he, he would know that, or he should know that. Um, and, I mean, I, I thought it was funny, to be honest, at first. I, mean, I thought I thought it was quite an ingenious way of trying to get a let. Good idea. But, obviously, when you've done something three times before and you've been warned like that, it's not very smart. Um, as Marion said, you know, he's human. I saw what uh, Corentin Moutet, a fellow French hothead, said. Um, you know, another man who can lose his temper pretty quickly. But he said, you know, we're all humans. 95% of the time, Hugo behaves well. It's just the odd thing that happens. But, you know, it's somewhere along the line, he's got to realise that he can't do these things because it's going to cost him so much money that he won't be able to play tennis. And that's just 
that's just sad because he's a young guy with a lot of talent. Um, you know, who didn't love him doing 54 drop shots against Dominic Team uh, those years ago and making Team almost pull his hair out. Uh, beat Vavrinka, incredible talent. So you want to see that nurtured. But I think Marion's right. Give him some help to understand why he can't handle himself in those situations. There's an argument to say that the umpire could have said, look, Hugo, you know, you do that again and you'll be this will be unsportsmanlike conduct in a match and give him leeway. But on the other side of that, he's already been penalised three times. So he knows what he can and can't do. I think I think he just needs to understand more about uh, why he does the what he does in the moment uh, and try and figure that out. As a fine goes, yes, it's a lot of money. Of course it is. Um, and maybe there are better ways of dealing with it. You know, maybe you get him to teach kids or something, you know, um, underprivileged kids as part of the of the punishment. But but yeah, it was, it's all it's a, it's a big it's a big fine and something he has to deal with. All right, let's continue on now. During the quarterfinal against Olga Rune in Rome, Novak Djokovic asked referee Mohamed Layani to stop making score announcements so dramatic. Uh, by too dramatic, he meant that the uh, umpire was referee was taking too long, that he was, quote, singing the score, um, etc. What do you prefer, an umpire who brings originality to the court or, or just what, you know, Novak suggests, um, those who effectively just call out the score, perhaps. Um, someone uh, has to recall, obviously, Novak was uh, warned for talking too much as well. Which do you prefer, the referee who makes it dramatic and sings or the referee who's more straightforward? And perhaps why really was Novak so bothered by this? Simon, you go first. I mean, do you mean 15, love? That one. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's a lot more dramatic than that. 15, love. I, I I think uh, I think all that stuff is pretty ridiculous. That Muhammad does get to a point where it becomes he you know he wants to be part of this show. It's absolutely clear. If you ever meet him behind the scenes, he's a big character. You know he wants he considers himself part of the show. Um, but I feel that really he should not be. I mean there there's a there are things that umpires can do. You know like I quite like the the way umpires including Muhammad, talk to players a little bit on the side and say, look, you know, just watch your behaviour here. Don't get riled by the crowd. You know, this this is what you need to do. That's sensible. But the whole sort of overdramatic line killing or the fact that he leaps out of his chair to get to a bull mark even before it's even been asked for, I think, it, you know, it's a bit crazy. Maybe he's bored. Maybe he just gets a bit bored up there and wants to be involved a bit too much. I mean, there are others. He's not the only one. There are other umpires. I, I think some... Some like an argument. Some like to get involved in a bit of an argy-bargy. Um, but, you know, they're, they're all different characters. And I've forgotten his name, but what's the, what's the name of the uh, the, um, the great the umpire on the WTA side with the amazing voice, the deep voice? Cardinuni. Cardinuni. Well, you know, you wouldn't want to lose that. So there's a fine line between being uh, a part of the show, but not too much. You, you, you know, you always, in football, for example, the best referees are the ones that you don't talk about for 90 minutes. So maybe that's, maybe that's, that, that I would be leaning more that way. 
But would, would Novak have had such a problem if the day were going better for him? I mean, it's part of this, the fact that, I mean, let's be honest. You know, you find things to complain about, perhaps, that upset you because it's not really your day. Is, mean, that, is that part of it, maybe? Yeah, I, I, yeah, probably. I'm sure, obviously. If he was if he was playing better, he wouldn't be, he wouldn't have lost concentration. He wouldn't be losing, you know, thinking about too many other things. But to be honest, I'm quite impressed that he said that out loud, because I'm sure a lot of players do think it. And, you know... When you're not when you're not fully 100% concentrated, you can hear everything, and everything gets in your head. And you know, if you suddenly hear 15 love or whatever it is, then it's uh, that it, it would get to you a bit, and you'd get pretty annoyed, I reckon. Oh, Marion, you you tell us because you know, have there been referees in which they are now getting into your head? It is distracting to you, whether you're playing well or not. Is, is has that been a real thing for you? No, I have to say, big on the commentary side. You know, and for example, when I'm commentating in Rangaro, so I'm commentating in Wimbledon, and obviously they have the headsets, and you just have that voice going into your ears for four hours or five hours. At some point, <laughs> you're like, enough, please. That's take it enough. off. That's how much I can take. That's just, I just, honestly, I'm just putting the volume down because that's, that's becoming, in a way, it's funny, but at some point it's become really annoying. And I can understand that if you don't have the best day on the court, your just tolerance level gets slightly lower and then it's become slightly annoying. But even without Novak saying that, I was actually saying to my husband, you know, that's just over drama. That's just way too much. Even before Novak said it. Now, that was sort of part of the show and in a way that was funny. And, you know, but sometimes, I mean, I, I think it was in Madrid. I saw a match he was empiring. And in overall, a ball that was that far out and called it in. And it... You know, it's just like because he wants to get involved and just that far out. And then they put it into the screen and you just look ridiculous, you know. So I understand the fact that, you know, you can make it a little bit funky and a little bit funny and it doesn't have to be so strict all the time. But there is a line that you just can't cross. And and I think probably Mohammed felt like he was gaining confidence and confidence. He was getting higher and higher into the ranks. And at some point you're getting sort of... I mean, too much ego, you know, almost, and 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 you just go overboard. So I think a bit of it is funny. I think to the point where it is now, that's definitely too much. Definitely. Correction, <laughs> Marion. You, yes. Marion, you and I were at a, we were at a party uh, together with uh, Cater back at Morocco Blue Academy Gala, and uh, advantage uh, Bartoli. <laughs> he's got that voice. Right, he's got that. Right, he's got that rich, but he doesn't uh, overly dramatic. He just uses his voice as an instrument. It almost plays like music. This is different, right, Simon? You're saying he, th- this is Mohammed is someone who who wants to be part of the show, wants to affect the outcome almost. Yeah, I, he wants to be involved, and he, he, I think he can't help okay. himself. That, that's what I think. Uh, speaking of dramatic, mine. Can we see those fingernails again, please? Can you show <laughs> the, the folks up to your camera your nails? Look at that! Wow. That I'm is dramatic. That's ready. phenomenal. <laughs> hey, I've got. I've you got are ready. Point. You know what I would like to see is I would like to see Muhammad umpire an Ostapenko match. That, <laughs> oh that, that would be the one. That'll be it. She could. That's she it. she could All deal right. with him. All right. Let's continue on now. After his Rome semifinal against Olga Rune, Casper Rude asked for a rule change on when players should be allowed to take a medical timeout. Rude was up by a set and a break but then won just two more games for the remainder of the match, which might suggest that Rune didn't really need the break after all. Is Rude right, or should he only blame himself for losing focus in this match? Which do you believe is the case, Marin Bartoli? 
I feel we have this debate so many times before, and it's a tricky one because obviously, when you unfold a scenario like this, you're like, yeah, I mean that that uh, medical timeout was just like a cheat and whatever. But you're never in in the head of a player. You're never in the body of a player. And I just don't feel like it's Olga type to call for a physio if he doesn't feel he needs a physio. So I just feel like from someone as experienced as Casper Ruud playing two Grand Slam final, I think that's something you should be able to handle. Now, I'm not saying that a medical timeout is not something that can cut out your, your rhythm, but how many medical timeouts we have seen over those years by used by all the players? Even Roger was completely against it at the end. I think he used it once against Rafa, you know, in the final. So I think everyone, absolutely everyone has been at some point having a blister, twist their ankle, you know, something that you absolutely require the physio. So I can't say that we can stay a rule that says no physio at all, because that's just not possible. You can have a blister in your hand that disturbs you to play. But if you have a tape and something that can help you to finish the match... Now, is there a timing more low than another? I think it was stated that you can't call the physio if it's before your opponent's service game to do not disturb the rhythm of your opponents. But um, if it's before your own service game and you're in a changeover, and if you're someone a lot more experienced at Olga Rune with two Grand Slam final in your bag, I just don't see that as being a completely mon- momentum switch as the score showed. Um so I, I'm not saying it's not disturbing, but I don't think it's the only reason why he lost the match. That's my point. Um, and I'm not sure what exactly we can do. You know, I'm not saying that... I, I just don't see how we can stop entirely to have the physio on the court. Right, Simon? Do you see that happening? I, I, th- I, I think you could make it a rule that you can't have a medical timeout before your opponent serve. And if you if you if you de- but if you if you desperately need it, then you have to give up that next game, you know. So you get to the point where it's your serve next. A little bit like when you have when you have cramp on the court and you just concede the next two points or whatever. Um, so I think that would stop some players automatically. You know, I, I'm with you. I don't think Runa sets out to unsettle his opponents by taking these timeouts, but he's he's a little quick to go to them. And maybe, you know, if he knew that you can't do it until it's before your your service game next, then that would that would at least stop the opponent from feeling like they've been cheated, even if that's not actually what's happening. You're totally right. I mean, Rude should have should have been able to handle the match situation anyway. It was up a set and a break. He should have should have been able to finish it off. Um but I, I feel like, you know, I don't, it's really when it definitely disrupts the rhythm when it's done before the the opponents serve, and if you could somehow remove that part of it, that would be better. Maureen, I know you wanted to add something there. Go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to add when I was playing, but I will have to double check if the rule is still in place. You were only allowed to three medical timeouts per year. If you're overpassing that, you had to start to pay for those medical timeouts on the court. And the the WTA, yeah. So the WTA put that in place because they had some datas showing that it was a certain ranking that was more calling the physio rather than another ranking, and they thought that by you know putting sort of almost a fee in a way, 
that will sort mm -hmm. of slowing down those type of player to call for the trainer. But I have to double check if it's in place now. Obviously, I'm retired since 10 years, so the, the, the rule book might have changed. But it was absolutely the case. They start to put that in place from 2010 onwards. So the last three seasons that I played, it was like that. And uh, every time you were having a medical timeout on the court, they were sending you an email to tell you whether you have two remainings or one remaining or you're done with your sort of free medical timeouts. All right. Continuing on now, another thing that we learned during the clay season was that line judges will be replaced by live electronic line calling across the ATP Tour from 2025. But on clay you can see the mark of the ball. And some think the eye remains the best on that particular surface. What is your opinion on this issue? And Simon, we'll get started with you. I'm I'm split on this a little bit. I do like things to be right. So I don't like injustice in sports, you know, wrong goals being conceded in football, bad line calls, turning matches, etc. That really does upset me. But, you know, we saw in Rome, didn't we? I'm going to come back to Mohamed Leani. He raced down to uh, talk to Andy Murray in the first round uh, to tell Murray that the ball had clipped the line when there was a whole ball mark two inches behind or an inch behind it. You know, how do you as a player actually reckon, you know, reconcile that with someone telling you something else? Now, the problem at the moment is that Hawkeye, the actual Hawkeye technology, has not been approved for clay yet. So it's a question of whether it becomes Fox 10 or one of the other ones that that is that becomes approved and it and it does work. But I I like the drama of seeing the marks. I enjoy a bit of that. Um I can see the reason for keeping it. Um but it's so difficult. I mean, Leani said the ball had wiped away some of the clay from the line had been wiped away, so the ball must have hit it. But that could have happened on any shot in the rally or two points before or whatever. So there's human error going on. I don't like that. Um, there's the argument about, you know, lines people, uh, most umpires coming from being a linesman in the first place. So you're stopping that kind of uh, work progression, uh, training on the job. So that's bad. Um, but if it's, you know, it's something the players are going to have to buy into. If they decide that it works and that the ball mark is not there, is not what they're seeing, then that's fine. But I think players will always, always, look at the mark and believe what they see rather than what they're told by a computer. Marion, which is best, the electronic line call on clay or allowing humans to continue? Well, for from having really, really bad experience, I, I have one, I mean, I still remember it nowadays, so can you imagine? <laughs> it was in Roland Garros. I was playing against my great friend Shahar Pierre. It was such a tight first set. Courses are long length. Tie break of the first set after like an hour and some. I have set point for me. She had a defense lob that just lands out. There is a mark that is out. The line just called it out. It's my set. The the chair empire came down and tried to sort of make their circle more complete and this whole of fully draw the mark or whatever, which is, oh my God, don't even get me starting there. And tell me, no, the ball is in. And they obviously, they didn't have live Okai on the screen, but they put the Okai on the TV and people actually filmed the TV showing that the ball was out. And that changed the whole set. So I'm not saying it's only for me and whatever, but it's just that part when not only sometimes the Empire can judge the wrong mark, that's already as a player so frustrated, yeah. I can tell you that. It's so frustrated. When you know where the ball has bounced 
and you know you have circled the right mark and the umpire comes and start to judge the wrong mark, you, you can't believe how frustrating it is. But then this whole, when the supposedly the mark is judged properly and the right mark is judged, and they sort of finish the mark and tell you that it has clipped one millimeter of the line, oh my God, I can't take that anymore. I just can't take that anymore. You know, so I just feel if they're able to have the technology being slightly more precise because the one or two millimeters of error is just too much. You have to make it really no error or as much as possible, no error. I think it's it's a lot, it's way better. Now, to remove entirely the line judge, I have a small issue with that because that gives job to people, first of all. Then actually a lot of them really enjoy to do that and they feel like they are part of the whole tennis circus and part of the show and you start actually to know the line judges as well. You know them from one tournament to the other and I just cutting out that whole human is difficult for me. But the problem is as a player point of view, as a fan and spectators, you're like, okay, that's funny, a little bit of drama and stuff. But as a player point of view, you just can't take that anymore. I mean, it, it becomes to a, to a point when you just feel so much frustration that it's getting really difficult for you to handle that. So I think maybe if we can come to a midpoint saying that we keep the line judge, but the okay shows the right mark. And out of that then the umpire can come and, you know, see the mark and whatever, but at least show the right mark because not agree on the mark, it's not something I can take anymore. Simon, go ahead. You want to add something. I think, go I ahead. think maybe you could have uh, like a challenge. The, you, you Instead of having live Hawkeye on clay, you go back to the challenge system where you can make two or three challenges a set or whatever. But And and the umpire has the technology on his, on his uh, screen. So you can then look at it. And so they use it as a backup rather than a first call. You can still you, you can keep you can keep the drama, but you you have at least a little bit of extra backup. Maybe maybe that's the way to go. Yeah. In a day and age where everything and everyone needs to be right all the time, and the technology allows for people to share when someone's wrong, Simon's right. You, you want to get it right. The human element of error, you know, shouldn't exist in this day and age. There's just far too much writing upon it. Okay, let's continue on here. Uh, lastly, to our final question of this edition, and we, we come to someone who's not currently on tour, Simona Halep. Remember, Halep is provisionally suspended pending a hearing onto anti-doping charges. Recently, she did go public, unusually such, issuing a statement saying that she feels, quote, harassed by the International Tennis Integrity Agency whom she says is delaying her hearing in front of an independent panel. What is your perception of what is going on with this and what is happening lately with Simona Halep? And we will begin with you, Marian Bartoli. Well, there has been a sort of second story to that um, as the, the anti-doping agency has been releasing a statement saying that they have found some irregularities into the biologic passports of Simona Halep. So what does that mean is you have some blood tests done throughout the year and out of those blood tests, they try to figure it out if your tests are aligned with the previous one or if there is some irregularities and therefore out of those irregularities is there is a possible way of doping that basically help them to then target a more specific product into your urines um, so that's how they 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 do that, and uh, it was in place when I was playing. 
that said, that those are facts. Those are facts. Those are public. They're all over the internet. Those are the facts. I've played against Simona on many occasions. She was actually the last match I've played on my career. I know her since she arrived on the tour. Um, I just don't see her as being someone cheating the system. Uh, I've been seeing her really working extremely hard based on the fact that she didn't have so much huge weapons and she had to play against Serena and, and big hitters and and she was able to win those Grand Slam, I feel, based on her hard work, dedication and conducts towards um, you know, getting the best out of what she could do on the court. That's my take on her. Now, obviously, if someone comes and proves me by A plus B, that's, that's not the case. You know, but I think we have to hear the full trial and the full thing and, and show us the full evidence before we can make a statement. I'm just giving you a personal opinion on the, on the person, on the player that I know. But then obviously, if someone proves me and the doctor proves me, well, your perception is wrong because this is a result and that shows someone has took something, then what else I can say? You know, but I'm just giving you my personal opinion on her as a person, as a player, as someone I played against, as someone I've practiced with, as someone I've seen behaving for four years, I don't think she has done this. That's my only take. But maybe I'm wrong. And but at, until you prove me wrong, basically with a full trial and and someone telling me I'm wrong, that's still what I would think of her. Someone that is true to herself, that has values, is hard worker, and has talent, and has won what she has been able to win based on her hard work. Simon, we'll give you the final word on Simona Halep. Yeah, I I agree completely with Marion in terms of. Uh, Halep as a person, you know, I mean, you never know what's going on totally behind the scenes. I have no inside knowledge about her case or anything like that. But, um, you know, she's a she's always been an incredibly nice person to talk to, to interview. Um, She's very generous with her time. She's very courteous. She's good fun. I would be I would be very surprised to, to learn that she has deliberately cheated. Absolutely, um, I, I'm, I'm slightly. Uh, she's obviously very upset, and she, and rightly so, because she's off the tour for, she's been off the tour for seven, eight, nine months already. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's in danger of ruining the end of her career, ruining her reputation. You know, she must feel like her whole world is ending. But, um, and you can understand why she wants to get you know, get the hearing done as quickly as possible. I know that there, it's a very complicated case. Um, she's got a lot of lawyers involved so that every time there's a, a discussion point, it takes time for those answers to come back from each side. So maybe that's a reason that the uh, the case is going on longer than she would have hoped it would. Um, and all that said, I, I, I would have, I would like to see this, this decided in the usual way, with a hearing, etc., done the way these cases are done, without the need for it to be carried out in public. I don't think that serves anyone much good, you know? It doesn't make Simona look good. It doesn't make the agency look good. You, it just creates tension, and you wonder, you know, what's the point in all that? So I'm, I'm sure that, you know, everyone would prefer for it to be, you know, done behind the scenes and carried out. But as Marion said... Hopefully we will get to the to the to the truth of it all and see the full facts of the matter and find out exactly what's going on. 
I personally, I'd still be surprised if Simona had done anything deliberately. You know, we're talking about her defences that it's a supplement that she took that was contaminated. She says she can prove that. She says that the lawyers have proven that. Uh, and we will wait to see what happens in the case. The one, the only one thing I would say is, you know, you would say innocent until proven guilty, but in tennis and doping, it's the other way around, isn't it? And so that's that. That's the frust- That's the frustration. That's the frustration. She has to prove her innocence, which is a very tough situation if it's been contaminated supplements or something else, you know. So, you know, I'm sure it's a it's an awful situation for her. Um, I hope that it gets dealt with quickly, um, which is her main aim here, of course, uh, and we'll find out the truth of it. But it's uh, it's obviously a really difficult situation. And we will leave it there for now. It will obviously be interesting to see how this plays out. And all we can hope for is that justice does, in fact, prevail. Um, thank you to our panel, Marin Bartoli, Simon Cambers. Of course, enjoy the French Open from Roland Garros. We'll be back with a brand new edition following, of course. Thanks for watching. We will catch you next time for the next episode of Match Points here on TennisMajors.com. <laughs>